Um, Graham said to me, Nicholas, make sure you tell people to bring food on Tuesday night. Um, bring food on Tuesday night. At 6.30. At 6.30. Uh, you can bring it wherever you want, but the rest of us are meeting at Graham's house. Um, everyone is welcome, even if you're not a, a regular at the Bible study. And if you're not a regular at the Bible study, why not become one? Uh, registration is free. In fact, you don't even have to register. You just turn up. Uh, it's a, we have a great time there. Well, we're, we're back today in Corinthians. But before we start, let me, just, let me just pray. Lord, thank you that you are love. Thank you that you are kindness and goodness and patience. Thank you that you are the truth. Lord, thank you that you are the one who never tempts us, but that you are the one who walks with us and guides us and tests us through the temptations that are put in our path. Lord, I, I thank you that you are good because we're not. Father, we, we fall short so often. And yet, you are always there. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. Please open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear what you want to say today. Please open this mouth to speak what you would want to say. Holy Spirit, speak. Father, by your Spirit, speak. Help us to look to Jesus and through Jesus to you. Amen. I saw a, a, a cartoon on Facebook the other day. You know the wonderful footsteps poster? Wonderful. There I am, one set of footsteps. It was you carrying me. This cartoon's got two pictures. Uh, one says, you see there with this, only one set of footsteps, that's where I was carrying you. Next picture. And you see that long line through the sand. That's where I was pulling you, kicking and screaming. <laughs> and I think, yes, that's sometimes very true. Well, we're today we're not so much pulling and kicking and carrying. Today we're, we're continuing our, our look at 1 Corinthians. And, and for those of you that have been here less than seven months, you will have no idea what we've said before. So jump on the website and, and have a listen. It was about... July, August last year that we did the first half of First Corinthians. And we're left off in chapter 9 with that wonderful chapter where Paul speaks about running the race and, and doing whatever it takes to make sure. Just, just read the last few verses there. He says, don't you realize that in a race everybody runs but only one person gets the prize. So you run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. And basically what he's saying there is, is as Christians, we are, we are headed towards the eternal prize of Christ. Are we, are we running full tilt to Christ? We've got that wonderful song that we, we, we've learned recently, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. Or the old version, if you want the old version, I have decided to follow Jesus. What, what are wonderful words. But that's what Paul's saying. We are pressing on to the goal that is before us. He says there in verse 26, this is Paul, the apostle, writing. He says, I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just beating the air. I'm not just shadow boxing. This is one of my favorite verses. I discipline my body like an athlete. The NIV, I think, says, I beat my body. 
training it to do what I should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Paul's point there is saying, I am doing everything I can so that I will not have run the race in vain. He says, I'm taking my trust in Jesus seriously. Jesus said to, um, to people in, I think it's John chapter 6, he says, you are truly my disciples if you keep obeying my commandments. You're truly my disciples if you keep obeying my commandments. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I'm not just putting my hand up and saying, yep, I believe Jesus, or yep, I was baptized uh, as a child, or yep, I was confirmed, or, or yep, I've been to church once in the last year. Paul says, no, I am running. I am putting every effort into this. I am following Jesus. I'm not just calling myself a Christian. I am a Christian. But he goes on because he's writing, of course, to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians are a great bunch of people. I love churches like the Corinthian church because they are so messed up that it gives me hope for every other church. You know, you know what? The, the amazing thing about the letters in the Bible, the letters in the Bible weren't written to thriving and succeeding churches. Okay, yes, they were thriving because the Holy Spirit was doing amazing things. And yes, they were succeeding because the Holy Church was doing amazing things. But at the same time, the letters in the New Testament are written for the most part because there's an issue. Big issues. If, go back, there's, there's issues. Sexual immorality in this church is rife. There's a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law. And we'll see this week and next week when they meet for the Lord's Supper. It's like a, a pig party, the first served, first eat. If you come last, if you're a bit slow getting to the Lord's table, bad luck. That's what they had. There's some serious issues here. They've got people here who are saying, oh, legalism. They've got people there going, oh, Paul, you're choking. That nutter. He's a weakling. Paul said to them, yes, I'm a weakling. He says uh, in his second letter, he says, yes, I'm a weakling, but I will glory in my weakness. Because when I'm weak, then Christ is strong. This is the kind of church that, that Paul is writing to. But, but especially, it's the kind of church we'll see in chapter 10 where, where they are really putting up their hands. I am a Christian! And probably even wave their hands, you know, for better reception during the the singing. But, but when they walk out the door, the run becomes a crawl. Paul looks at them and he says, you know what, let's, let's think about what it means to be the people of God in practice. The first word in chapter 10, which most translations um, don't translate, um, the ESV does, is for. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what I should. Otherwise, I fear that preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified for or because I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, 
about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. Chapter 10 follows on from chapter 9. It kind of makes sense if I say that, but, but the logic of it follows on. Paul says, I run the race, and because I'm running this race, this, this going for the prize, full ball, being a Christian in practice, not just in word, he says, because of that, because that is what we are called to do, because that is what the Christian life really is. James says, faith without works is dead. He says, because of all of this, this is Paul's equivalent of that, because of that, I want you to remember our ancestors, our fathers from long ago. Paul says, right at the beginning, he says, you know what, us Christians are not the first people to follow God. We come in a long line of those who have followed God. They are our fathers. And I love that. I love the way he says that I don't want you to forget about our ancestors or our fathers because Paul is writing to a non-Jewish predominantly church. And he's speaking about the ancient Israelites, the ones whom God led, the the, the ones into whom we as a church have been grafted. They are not just the Israelite ancestors. As Christians, spiritually speaking, they are our ancestors. Their history with God, if we are people of God, is our history with God. We are the new Israel of God. If Jesus is the true heir, and if we are in Jesus, then we are the true heir of Abraham. We are the people of Israel. And I think it's true to say that the Corinthian church knew about the Exodus. Remember the Exodus in Egypt brought out, we read about it in Nehemiah, they're brought out of Egypt by God's mighty power crossing the Red Sea, waves opening, led by day by a cloud and by night by a pillar of fire through the desert. These are our ancestors. The, the Corinthians knew the story, but Paul says, I don't want you just to know the facts. I want you to know why that's important for us today. I mean, have you thought about why is the Exodus important for us today? Well, we're Christians. We didn't get out of Egypt, did we? Says Paul there in the first three or four verses, he says, these ancient Israelites, as they were led from slavery in Egypt out, they just enjoyed so many blessings from the Lord. They were protected by God. They were guided by God. They were sustained by God. They were forgiven by God. God provided all that they need. And, and as we said, the defining moment for Israel is that moment when, when God's presence leads them and, and God opens the sea for them to walk across and dry ground. In fact, Paul looks at that and he says there, um, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, walked through the sea on the dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. And I think Paul is, is drawing some, 
some links here between ancient Israel and us. It's, it's not identical, but he says, yes, this was the defining moment for them. When this happened, they were baptized as followers of Moses. They, they, they became the people of, of Moses, uh, the people of God through Moses. And the same for us when, when we are baptized. That's the defining moment for us. In, in a sense, we become the people of God through Jesus. Now, we're saved before we're baptized. They were saved before they crossed the Red Sea. But, but this is like a defining moment that you look back and you go, wow. Truly, truly, God is there. Paul goes on, he says, they ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual water, the rock that accompanied them. And he even goes on to say the rock was Christ. He's speaking figuratively here, but he's, but he's saying Jesus is as much their savior as he is ours. Makes sense, Jesus is God eternal. God is the one who saved them and provided for them and gave them their food and gave them their drink. And yet, despite Jesus accompanying them figuratively like that, they rejected him, they rejected God, and they went their own way. We come to verse 5, and it says, short, sharp sentence. Verses 1 to 4 is one long sentence. And then verse 5 is just like this. God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Um, if you were under 20 years of, old, of age, you were allowed into the promised land. Remember, what happened is that they stood at the edge of the promised land. They sent the spies in, um, 12 spies. Ten of them came back and said, Whoa, mate, this is impossible. These guys are giants. Two of them, um, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, whose father I don't remember, they turned around and said, you know what, it's really difficult, it's really difficult, but if God's with us, we can do it. And the Israelites said, hmm, thanks Josh, thanks Caleb, um, no. And God said, well, if that's the case, you will not get in. So most of them most of their bones were scattered in the wilderness. Of that generation, only two people. That's a lovely little uh, exaggeration or, or understatement that Paul makes there. Most of their bones were scattered. Yeah, well, it, uh, if a whole generation, only two get in, that's probably most of their bones. I haven't been up there recently. I haven't noticed it recently. If you drive up Wanneroo Road, now I know we're in the south, but imagine you're going up to Yanchip. If you drive up Wanneroo Road, just north of Jundlap, on the way towards Yanchip, as you enter, there's a beautiful forested section there. Uh, I imagine it's still there. There used to be a sign there as you came into the forested section that said, big white sign, there have been 23 fatalities on this road last year. which usually makes you drive a little bit slower. 
because it's a dangerous road. The point of that sign is we take notice of the past and change our behavior in the present. And for Paul, that is exactly what he wants us to do when it comes to Exodus. He says, take note of how people lived in the presence of God in the past and allow that to inform how we live today in the presence of God. Because, because there is a, a strong link. He's already said they, they are so similar to us. They had their own kind of baptism. They had their own kind of Lord's Supper even. The, the manna that they ate and the water that they drank was, was food from God. It, it was a bringing them into the family of God. I think what we happened to find in the Corinthian church is that the Corinthians would say, yes, oh yes, yes, definitely. When you are baptized, you are brought into the family of God. And when you eat the Lord's Supper, you, you, are, you are just joined with Christ so completely. And you know what? In a sense, yes. That, that is true. Baptism does bring you into the Messiah's family. And, and when we take communion, we really do share in the, in the, the life of the crucified yet risen Christ. We really do do that. But, but the problem is when we push that so far that we go and say, if I've been baptized, if I've done communion, then I have got this inoculation against the world. I've had my spiritual jabs and I can do what I want. And I look at that and say, if even Paul has to discipline himself, how much more the Corinthians and how much more us? What does he say? He goes on, verses 6 to 13. He says, we need to learn from the Israelites of old because they are an example to us. These things happened, verse 6, as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as these ancient Israelites did. And he goes on and he gives us a list of things that they did. He says they, they worshipped idols. They celebrated with feasting and drinking and indulged in pagan revelry. By the way, this verse does not teach that you're not allowed to drink. But it does teach something. We'll, we'll come to that in a second. We must not engage in sexual immorality. We shouldn't put Christ to the test. We shouldn't be grumbling. Now these aren't all of the things that we can learn from the ancient Israelites. And they're also not randomly picked. I think Paul has, has picked a few things from the Israelites which match over so nicely to the situation that he had in the church in Corinth. You see, I, I think for Paul and, and for the whole gospel really, the, the behavior of a Christian, what we do is more than just ticking off a few boxes and saying, right, I'm not going to disobey this rule. We've got to look back and see something of a pattern in the story of the Israelites in the wilderness so that we would not become cravers of evil. What does that mean? So that we would not become people who hunger and thirst and yearn and lust after things which do not 
honor God and which do not do us any good. So what does Paul talk about? He talks about uh, how the ancient Israelites worshipped idols. And in Corinthians, we'll see this next week, the big thing here is that they came from a city where idol worship was rife. And a lot of these guys would have been idol worshippers before they became Christians. And, and, and the issue, big issue that is dressing since chapter 8 to chapter 11, the big issue there is people who said, I'm a Christian, I can still go and worship at the idol temple. I can still go and take part in the pagan feasts. I can still go and take part in the rituals. Uh, Corinth, Corinth had a, a, a bit of a reputation for having lots of shrine prostitutes. Um, it's no issue that the verse Paul quotes is, is about drinking and partying and indulging in pagan revelry. Basically means, you know, going at it. Paul looks at the Corinthian church and says, you know what? I'm looking at you guys and you want to do this kind of thing. You don't even have to draw a comparison between you and the ancient Israelites because they did exactly the same thing. They went and they worshipped idols. And they prostituted themselves. You can read about that in Numbers, chapter 25. Paul goes on in verse 8, we should not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 to die. Numbers 25 again. They worshipped idols and then they, they indulged with the Moabite ladies. Numbers says 24,000 died. Paul says 23,000 died. I think Paul's, they're both rounding off. Paul's probably also accounting for the fact that the judges killed quite a few of the Israelites. Verse 9, Paul says, well, we shouldn't be putting Christ to the test as some of them did and died from snake bites. Numbers chapter 21 where the Israelites spoke against God and complained and said, we want something better than manna. And here in Corinth, they're putting Christ to the test by, by being syncretistic with their religion, by, by saying we will have not just God, we will be Jesus plus. We will serve Jesus plus this idol, Jesus plus that idol, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. Verse 10, he says, and don't grumble as some of them did. And Paul's looking at the Corinthians and he's, he's saying, having found your freedom in Christ, Do you really want to use your freedom to turn back and do anything at all, including going back to where you came from? Do you know what their grumbling was in ancient Israel? They went to Moses. Just every second chapter they go to Moses. And they say, Moses, 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 Moses. Why did you lead us here? We're going to die. It was better in Egypt. We want to go back. Paul looks at the Corinthians and says, 
are you really going to grumble about your freedom in Christ and say, I want to go back and indulge in my old life? It was good reason that they grumbled because life was not easy. I, for one, hate hot temperatures. I would have struggled in the desert. Luckily, there was a lovely cooling cloud. But, you know what? Same things for us. It's not easy always being a Christian. It's so easy to sear your conscience and go and live that way. But at the end of the day, isn't it just so much more worth it being a Christian? I think that's the point here. Paul's saying to them, don't grumble and say, I want to go back and I want to go into my old life again because you've been set free. He goes on, verse 11, he says here, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So then, verse 12, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall. Now you've heard this verse every week for the last four weeks, I think. Because as we've looked through the judges, we've, we've seen exactly that. People who think they stand and then they fall. People who do mighty things for God and then they fall. Or people who fall even while they are doing mighty things for God. I think what he's talking about there again is this attitude of the Corinthians going, if I am a Christian, if I've done all the Christian-y stuff, I have been inoculated against the world. I am safe. I can stand. And Paul says the ancient Israelites thought the same thing. They thought that their experiences with God meant that they could get away with anything that God would not blink because after all God had saved them and God wasn't going to do anything to them now, would he anyway? And Paul says, you can't treat God like that. If by your life you reject God, Some of the Corinthian believers didn't think that they were at all in danger when they took part in idol feasts and meals and festivals. And there are things today that we consider we can do without any danger. Sometimes we can, but what would Paul say if we I don't know, watch dodgy movies or read dodgy books or attended the Grammys. I don't know if you heard about the Grammys. I read about it last night and this morning. Um, The Grammys Music Awards, I think Music Awards, Music Awards, they decided as part of their awards ceremony they would marry 33 people, including, of course, same-sex couples, Um, and the acts that they put on, Madonna, Katy Perry, um, described 
kindly as disturbing, um, more appropriately as very dark and almost demonic. Um, but it's okay for us to watch that, isn't it? That's okay for us to take part. There was one um, that I know of, one Christian in the audience, Amy Grant, who left during an ad break. Didn't say exactly which act caused her to leave, but she said, I cannot, as a Christian, stay here. Paul's point here, at any point, any great hero of the faith can at any time find themselves horribly, suddenly vulnerable. Uh, N.T. Wright says that as the tectonic plates of the old age and the new age grind against each other, someone who thinks that they are standing firm one minute can next instant find a moral earthquake happening around them. And if we're not careful, find ourselves flat in our faces. And it's really difficult to run the race if you're lying flat in your face. So, what this means, of course, is that your salvation is dependent on how well you run the race. Bam. No! (laughs) Sorry to use you like that, Pam. Does this mean that our salvation is dependent on what we do? Does this mean that our standing with God is dependent on what we do? Aren't we saved by what Jesus has done? By what Jesus has done on the cross? By his being raised from the dead? Is it possible for us to be so antagonistic to God, to treat him so badly that we lose our salvation? To go from being under the protection of Christ to the point where God says, bones in the desert. Will God kill us if we don't live perfectly? (laughs) I'm glad you're shaking your head, Glennis. Can our actions snatch us out of Jesus' hand? No. Jesus said, John chapter 6, it is the Father's will that I should not lose any of those that he has given to me. No one can snatch us from Jesus' hand. Jesus uses that exact analogy. So what is Paul on about? I said it earlier, this is Paul's version of James's, James 1.14, faith without works 114 faith without works is dead in our readings recently um, acts 26 verse 21 paul is giving a, a summary of his gospel have a listen to what he says acts 26 verse 21 he says Um, 
Not 21. That's terrible. Uh, Must be. It's in Acts 26. Read it for yourself there. I've gone and read my blog on the church website. It's mentioned there as well. And there it's got the proper verse. But Paul says there, what he does when he teaches the gospel, part of what he teaches, he says, I teach the gospel, I teach people to turn to God, to repent, and then to prove by the way that they live that they are following Jesus. By our fruit we are known. I think what Paul is addressing here is he's speaking about the problem that comes when we take our salvation for granted, when, when we haven't got it, that our salvation is not a slot machine. When we haven't got it, that, that our salvation isn't something that we can just tick a box and say, I'm saved. That's what the Israelites treated God like. They... They said, well, God has saved us, therefore we can do what we want. God will just bless us and look after us because that's his job. And I look at those people and go, well, have you ever actually known God? Because that's not the God of the Bible. I said just now that it's really easy to live as a non-Christian if we sear our consciences. You know, one of the things which, which I love about God, and we read this in Romans chapter 1, one of the things I love about God is that he is not a God who forces himself on us. He's also not a God who we can use and treat as if he's not God. Because if we treat God like a slot machine and put on the right clothes and put up our hand and go, yes, I'm a Christian, and then live totally as a non-Christian. And what Jesus himself said, on that great day when he comes back, there will be many people who say to him, Lord, Lord, we, we did this and we did that and we, we told people about you and we preached and we, we did all these wonderful things in your name. And Jesus looks at them and goes, that's really, really impressive. Well done. Only issue is I don't actually know you. I, th- I think that's what we're talking about here. That's, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about people who, and boy, haven't we all been there? No, I've been there. People who think, if I only do the right things and pull the right levers and you know, do enough, God will, God will do the right thing. I, you know what? I'm a Christian, so I can do whatever I want. And God looks at us and goes, I'm glad you put your hand up. I'm glad you prayed the prayer. 
14 times. I'm just sorry you never got to know me. See, Paul's not writing chapter 10 as a threat. He's not saying, look, 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 look at them, look at them, look at them, now do better. Paul's saying, hey, look at them and consider how you live in your life. Don't make the same mistakes as they made. But, but by the way, you don't have to. Verse 13, you don't have to. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful and he will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. God's already committed himself to us when it comes to our being trialed and our being tempted and our being tested. The Corinthians were tempted to keep going to these pagan festivals and keep going to the idol temples. Paul's saying, you know, you don't have to. You can choose not to, or you can choose to yield to the temptation. It's, it's that freedom, that exactly that freedom that that makes us accountable before God for our actions. What does he say there? He says, when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. And I go, whew, good. So every time I'm tempted, I just go, God, exit, please, and then I'm not tempted anymore. No. The way out isn't necessarily the removal of that which tempts. but the capacity to stand and to endure. God will will provide a way out so that we can continue to bear it. Um, It sounds like a contradiction. How do you get a way out when you continue to bear it? In any case, says Paul, we can trust God to be faithful to the end. And temptation, says Paul, is no excuse. It's not as if my temptation is unique and nobody else has ever experienced the level of temptation that I have experienced. This is Paul. No temptation is unique to man. You know what? The devil is incredibly unoriginal. There's only so much that he works with. He puts different skins on it, different layers, different painting, changes the paint on the temptation every now and again. But underneath, there's only a handful of temptations. There are no original temptations. Um, and they all boil down to, at the end, putting God second and me first. Putting others second and me first. Putting my happiness and my comfort and my peace first. So how, how do we take the example of the ancient Israelites? How do we seek to not give in to temptation? Well, if you've ever tried, you know that the one way to not overcome temptation is to focus on it and to overcome it by a sheer strength of will. Um, The more you focus on your temptation, the more you focus on your temptation. Which is a spiral like there's no other spiral. 
The way to overcome temptation, says verse 13, is to cry out to God. To seek his help, to ask him to show us how to endure. Is that going to take it away in an instant? In his goodness, sometimes, yes, God will take it away in an instant. Sometimes endurance is a long lesson. But even crying out to God is part of learning to endure. You see, Paul says elsewhere we should set our mind on things that are above and not things that are below. We should set our minds on things that are true and pure and good and and righteous. Instead of focusing on the temptation, focus on Jesus. God, says James 1.13, does not tempt anyone, but he does allow trials and temptations. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. He gives us temptations, says James, to help us mature. But at the same time, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that we should pray for the strength to not give in to temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does God punish us if we do slip and give in to temptation? Will our bones be scattered in the desert? What's the closest desert, Desert, Steve? The Simpson Desert. Uh, If you are tempted today and you give in, will your bones end up in the Simpson? Slipping is not going to rob us of salvation. You've got to remember, Paul's writing to the Corinthians who have been doing these things. All the things he mentions in chapter 10, there are people in the church guilty of them. Paul says, repent. Turn to God. Get to know God. Lest you fail to win the prize. Paul's speaking We fail to get the prize, I think Paul's speaking here about when we, not when we are frail humans who make mistakes, but when we have a deliberate pattern of unrepentant sinning. The more we give in to temptation, the easier it is to give in to temptation. So how do we cope? Ask God to forgive us. I mean, he's already forgiven us completely on the cross, hasn't he? All of our sins have been paid for. Hebrews 4.15, Jesus, we're told, is our great high priest who understands and knows because he has been tested and tempted in every way just like us. Oh, I love that passage. And because he knows, says Hebrews, he deals gently with us. Why can't God just not tempt us? Well, God, see, well, I've slipped into a mistake there. God doesn't tempt us. God allows us to be tempted. But why does God allow us to be tempted? Because he wants to test us to see if we really love him more. 
It's exactly what we saw in the Judges. It's exactly what we saw in Judges. Remember right at the beginning, God said, I've left these nations here to test my people, to see if they will be true to me and follow after me. Is it a sin to be tempted? Just straw poll. Sin to be tempted, yes or no? Yes, it's a sin to be tempted. No, it's not a sin to be tempted. I think you're right. It's not sinful to be tempted. Boy, I'm preaching to the choir here. This is good. Uh, Jesus was tempted, yet remained sinless. It's a sin to give in to temptation. To yield to it in what we think or what we do. But the answer to that, twofold. If we read our Bibles, we see that God takes yielding to temptation seriously. So let's follow the example of others and not make the same mistakes that they made. But the second bit, and this is the bit of the gospel, this is the bit of grace, this is the bit of, wow! Cry to Jesus. Cry to Jesus. Job cried. Oof, Job cried in a bit, didn't he? There's like 30 odd chapters of Job crying out to God. God didn't take away Job's temptation to curse him. Didn't take away his trials immediately. But what we find at the end of Job, before God restores all that he had, we find Job listening to God because God turns up and starts speaking and Job says, you're God, I'm not. Job learned to endure it. Oh Lord, may we learn that too. Amen.